how do we start taking the noise of tell-all that all this data and to kind of put it in a con in a construct that we can actually understand like what's really changing and what you know what's what's permanent what's temporary hi welcome to Hymnscast. i'm kat jersich senior editor at healthcare it news as more data has emerged about telehealth, a lot of industry watchers, providers, and patients are seeking to look into who's using virtual care and who's starting to ease off. But it's not just about the who. Some experts, like my guest today, note that it's also about the why and the how. So here with us to discuss why some people are sticking with virtual care and how they're choosing to engage with it is Sanjala Jane, Senior Vice President of Market Strategy and Chief Research Officer at the predictive analytics company Trillion Health. Sanjala, thanks for being here with me today. Great to be here, Kat. So I wanted to talk to you today because Trillian just released this incredible in-depth report that really goes into what I was just talking about, which is that market segmentation of who's using telehealth and why. And could you just get us started by talking us through some of the initial findings? Yeah. So as you know, I'm a health economist, so I'm kind of primed to think about healthcare from the lens of supply, demand, and yield. And so this report and really study was born out of this notion that how do we start taking the noise of tell-all and all this data and to kind of put it in a con- in a construct that we can actually understand like what's really changing and what you know what's what's permanent, what's temporary. And so the really, if I had to distill all the findings together, it would be supply for t- telehealth exceeds demand for basically a good that is kind of priced at commodity prices in a market that when you really think about the size of the users for telehealth, it's really parallel to a lot of luxury brands like Peloton or, you know, consumer vehicle, you know, luxury cars like BMW and Mercedes. So the report really breaks down a lot of those trends within that, but that's really the big picture of with all this funding and investment going into this technology, it's, it's an important tool, but we have to start understanding, you know, who are the individuals that used it during kind of what I call this forced adoption period of the pandemic, where you really didn't have much choice and who kind of continued using it and who is probably likely to stop using it. And then taking all of those inputs to start figuring out what is the post-pandemic kind of landscape look like. So depending on you know who you are in the industry, whether you're a policymaker or your provider or your investor, you kind of have a evidence-based kind of foundation to really understand, okay, what what's what's the real picture here? Hmm. That's really interesting. And it's funny that you mentioned Peloton because Peloton also, as we both know, experienced a pretty big drop in demand after people started going back to the gym. There's something of an analogy there, I think. And I say as um, someone who follows Peloton, because I think it's very interesting. Well, but that's spot on. And there's actually a couple of great uh, data stories in the report that just give those analogies because there's so much of our behaviors across, you know, our lives, right? Whether it's we working from home, travel, you know, fitness like Peloton that, you know, there for a moment in time, not a lot of us had the same choices we used to have. And so we did things differently for a period of time. Now, you know, we're not fully out of all kind of pandemic, you know, life. So there's, we're seeing some settling. And so there's some early signs in the data for all those different lifestyle preferences that kind of really match pretty nicely to certain consumer segments that, you know, are pretty revealing of where this might, where the dust might start settling in a couple of months. Interesting. Yeah. I I know you and I have talked about before, we've seen, as we just said with the Peloton, a huge drop in volume because, I mean, the, the spike in early 2020, March, April was 
unprecedented. And now things are kind of leveling out. You just mentioned that there are now more choices about how people get access to healthcare. Are there any other insights you want to share about what's behind that kind of drop in volume? Yeah. So, you know, two ways to think about it is when I, we think about the consumers of telehealth, it's from the patient perspective, but also the provider perspective. Um, the report kind of un- unpacks both, but I'll, I'll start with the patients. So when you look at all the individuals who use telehealth for healthcare during the pandemic timeframe, so I'm saying you know, 2020 through 2021, what we see is that actually basically 46% of all those users used it one time. Right. So that that's a huge chunk of people that are not coming back, even in this long window of time where you still had restricted choice. So that's one big faction that you need to start. You know, we need to start thinking about, Okay, so what is that one time use case for? And like, why is it just one time? And what's interesting is when you look at the reasons from like an actual clinical, you know, what were they seeing the physician for? majority of it actually was for COVID related things. So what do I mean by that? It was, if you, if we all remember, it was a lot of getting screening or access to PCR tests where you had to, you know, consult a provider to go through, you know, your symptoms and criteria to then get an appointment for a lot of tests. And we see that in the data. So if you think about a, a basically half of your user base used it once for a reason that isn't going to be a permanent reason that sticks with us going forward that starts explaining a lot of the, the, the peak that we saw, right? And so the next question becomes, okay, so were there people that, you know, had to use it that really liked using it, right? So we talked a lot about, the, you know, who likes it, who loves it, who has to have it, right? So we have this construct that we introduced in the study where it's basically the single users, what I just, just described, the kind of low users, so, you know, two to four visits, kind of the average user, and then the high and super utilizers. So when you look at the high and super utilizers, right, that's really the people that love telehealth, right? Those are the, the individuals that, okay, that becomes your, your un, that really will define the future of what telehealth looks like, what the market looks like, you know, where are the opportunities for growth. And we can talk about what they look like, but that's really where, you know, if we think about why it's dropping, it's because it's really, we had to make some temporary choices and we had exposure to it as individuals. And some of us had to use it for very specific use cases, but once in-person options came back, those individuals began to view telehealth as a, you know, what us economists call an inferior good. The Hmm. only exception, right, is for a lot of the behavioral health applications we saw. And in that case, telehealth proved to be a pretty good substitute. But when all the options come back, by and large, most consumers didn't feel like it was really the, the best option for them. And we see that also on the provider side, right? So providers were also consumers of telehealth. And, you know, one of my favorite data points on this is if you look at the physicians who were, were kind of early adopters of telehealth, even before the pandemic, so they're kind of like a good con- control group to have, like, you know, what, what is, what, what do they look like? Their share of volumes so that, you know, their share of patient care that was delivered via telehealth was about like 20% before the pandemic. And same thing, right? During the peak of the pandemic, they had no choice. And so, you know, they're going up to 60%. But we're seeing now in 2021, you know, it's starting to hover back to pre-pandemic norms, right? It's going down to to 40% and it's kind of hovering down to 30s. And so both ends of the continuum, both the provider perspective and the patient perspective, you have large groups that, 
you know, just don't want to continue using it. And they only did because they had to. What really strikes me talking with you now and during our past conversations is breaking down the different types of consumers as a journalist really enables me to kind of dig deeper into who's using telehealth, because we do see a lot of reporting that says patients are interested in it. Patients will continue to use it. But as you just mentioned, there's kind of a world of difference between I have to use a telehealth consultation to get a PCR test because that's what my provider is requiring. And I really like to talk to my therapist on the phone so I can go and look for snow owls in the park. Very specific example uh, (laughs) based on my life. Um, But I'm wondering how that market segmentation can really enable stakeholders and really enable innovators to start thinking about the future of virtual care in a more effective way. I mean, I think one of the things that we don't think enough about in healthcare is how other businesses and other industries think, right? And that's where I bring back the economic framework. I mean, what do the laws of economics tell us about, you know, our consumers, right? Our total addressable market for virtual care ultimately comes down to the people who will use it. And I don't, you know, this is really the first study in as far as I have seen that has begun to actually quantify that. And in a market where you have retail entrants like Walmart and Amazon, I mean, we have traditional healthcare players having to compete on strategy with these established brands who, by the way, they make all their decisions grounded in data. They know everything about their consumers. They know how to message them. They know very well. I always make the grocery store analogy, right? Like if you go shop at Whole Foods, Whole Foods knows like who their highly loyal customer base is, and they know who are the occasional shoppers, right? They make their entire strategic plan around knowing those segments. But we don't think about that in healthcare. In healthcare, we stop at Medicare versus Medicaid, right? Commercially insured. We don't think about them as people and making lifestyle choices. And so even when you take payer out of it, we start seeing, okay, well, the people that love telehealth actually turn out to, from a demographic point of view, they tend to be white women, commercially insured, between the ages of 21 to 40. And Mm -hmm. they are the most consistent users. And not only are they consistent, but they're using it for primarily behavioral health, which makes sense given, you know, all the literature we know about the impact that the pandemic has had disproportionately on women, Mm. which is different than those single users we were talking about earlier, where you start seeing more variety, right? We saw a lot of men try it, you know, um, older adults try telehealth. So it's not that it was an access issue in that case, right? Like a lot of people had to use it and they figured it out, but then they stopped using it. So, you know, as we think about what that means for the industry, I think depending on who you are and what vantage point you sit from, really, you have to ask yourself, what is the total addressable market for this technology? And that has to be based in who are the individuals. And so, you know, you'll see in in the study, some of the numbers, I mean, really, you're looking at your market of kind of high and super utilizers. I mean, it's it's less than 10 million people, right? Like that, that's a very small percent of the population. And I think that's one of the things that we've conflated so much. We talk about visits and utilization and it's great, but, but great for who? And it's, it's kind of like the Peloton thing, right? Like there's a, there's a very clear archetype of who the Peloton customer is, right? Mm-hmm. Same thing for telehealth. I'm really curious about this as well, because I do a lot of reporting about Uh, equity in terms of digital health tech. And if telehealth is only really being super used by a certain user profile, what are the consequences of that for health equity? 
are there ways that you see certain groups of people who aren't being catered to or who are being left behind or who are running into barriers who could represent another group of people that stakeholders could reach out to? Yeah, I mean, I'm so glad you raised that because I think that's one of the challenges that we have right now, right? From a policy perspective, right? We're talking a lot about access and broadband and, you know, rural areas. But the starting point is, okay, so is it that we're not reaching those individuals or that they don't want to use it, right? And that that's one level you have to tease out. And I think the macro finding with this, though, is that telehealth was intended to be a tool to expand access. Mm-hmm. And it didn't reach the people that kind of need healthcare the most, right? That, that need these additional services. So going forward, how do we kind of solve that health equity issue in the gap? I mean, we have to figure out, you know, the why. And so, you know, a fun data point just to give you an idea is, you know, among individuals, you know, a lot of older Americans who have hearing loss, right? So think that starts getting into your Medicare population. There's a lot of discussion right now in Washington around, you know, Medicare policies for telehealth. Well, about 39% of individuals who had hearing loss that use telehealth stopped using it after one visit, right? So that is also a barrier to care. Right. And we're starting to think about, you know, the the access point from a lower income or other geographies. I think the other question comes back to like the substitution effect of the technology. Right. So is it that individuals can't access it? Or, you know, how much of healthcare needs to be delivered in person? Like you think about some of the ancillary services. I mean, behavioral health is one thing, but for primary care, I mean, think about you know, getting a well visit or getting, you know, lab work. I mean, those are some foundational preventative care um, use cases and those can't be delivered via telehealth. So I think when it comes to health equity, we, we tend to make a lot of broad assumptions. And what I would say is we have to start peeling back the layers of where are the individuals using it or not using it. And some of the data does show, you know, we actually are reaching people in some of the more rural areas, right? Mm-hmm. So it's not like they can't access it. Not all of them necessarily want to use it, right? Or there may be other barriers, but we have to have a data-driven way to be in quantifying that because otherwise we're making a lot of assumptions and thinking about making a lot of investment decisions from either a policy perspective or, you know, venture capital perspective, whoever you are, you know, without having a true understanding of what population we're thinking about. Absolutely. And I did want to dig into the question of demographics versus psychographics. Mm-hmm. I talked about this before. It occurs to me some listeners might not know what psychographics are. Could you talk us through a little bit about the difference between those two concepts and why the latter is so important to be considering in these situations? Absolutely. So it's kind of back to the Amazon kind of way of thinking, right? Like, Each of us are consumers and we may demographically look a certain way, right? We are both women, but how we make choices or the things that matter to us are back to how we make decisions, right? It is in our psychology and our behavior. Hmm. And so when we think about all aspects of our life that are even non-healthcare, right? You know, do you shop online or do you go to the store? Do you drink five cups of coffee versus one, right? There are things in our psyche that are predictive of that. So psychographics is a you know methodology that a lot of other industries use. And it, for the healthcare construct, there's basically five major psychographic profiles that are set innate in us, you know, from the age of 18. Mm-hmm. So 
every kind of healthcare consumer out there has a psychographic profile. And I won't bore you with, you know, the, the depths of each of them. But, you know, for example, there are some profiles of individuals like self-achievers, right? It's basically exactly what the name says. They're highly proactive about their health or the ones that are like, you know, following their doctor's orders, they're reading all the healthy things, you know, they probably have an Apple watch and they're, you know, quantified self and, you know, they're working out, they're eating healthy, they're doing everything right, right? They're just, they're those go-getters. We can see who those individuals are and you'll see self-achievers across pay type, across gender, across race, right? So that's where it becomes more predictive than demographics because you start being able to actually figure out what will this person do? What kind of decisions will they make? So when it comes to telehealth, the data shows that there are you know, kind of two psychographic profiles in particular that are highly predictive of wanting to use telehealth and self-achievers are one of them, right? And it makes sense because if you run parallel data, we see that some of the high and super utilizers, they're also more likely to wear a wearable, right? Mm-hmm. They So there's a lot of attributes around these individuals about how they operate just as a human being and how they make decisions And that ultimately gives you a sense of how will they engage with the healthcare system, right? Like, you know, in a non-telehealth construct, there are profiles where if you built an urgent care center literally on their driveway, they would not go because they have brand perceptions and they perceive quality to be higher at a name brand institution. So they will drive 30 miles further based off how they, you know, view Mm -hmm. that brand. So that's where psychographics just it, there's a lot of different applications for how you message to people and how to predict, you know, their preferences. And when you layer that on top of demographics, you know, you have a fuller picture of, you know, who your individuals are, but psychographics are really the starting point because, you know, knowing Medicare versus Medicaid only gets you so far. Right. I know you said you didn't want to bore us with the um, psychographic profiles, but I'm curious what the other one is. The other one are willful endurers. So uh, what's interesting is, you know, willful endurers are also, they're kind of like, I live in the here and now, right? Mm -hmm. So there are folks that also tend to frequent urgent care centers and emergency departments, right? Where when you need something on the go, you know, you you don't necessarily have as long of an established relationship with a provider, you're just kind of getting what you need in that moment. And so, which, you know, there are some, you know, anecdotal things to think about there when it comes to telehealth, right? It's, you know, do are you calling in for a you know prescription? Are you calling in to see um, you know? I think a lot of the um, COVID applications that we saw are kind of reflective of that, right? Absolutely. If you need a PCR test tomorrow, you're going to want to try to utilize something as quickly as possible and not wait for ten days for your provider to get you in. Right. Um, yeah, that makes a lot of sense. I know we only have a few minutes left here, but I did want to ask too, do you have any predictions for the future of telehealth and demand and profitability? Absolutely. Well, so kind of where I started, right? I think, um, you know, the prediction I think is already kind of playing out just, you know, there's, I'll bring it back to the laws of supply and demand. And so um, my prediction is kind of at the very end of the report. So I encourage you to look at it and it's basically showing, you know, demand is going down, right? And the starting point of that is take out that 46%, right? Like assume in a most conservative scenario, how many of those individuals who have to use it will continue using it. And based on what they used it for, that's not looking like a probable scenario. Hmm. You think about, you know, suppliers, right? There's, you know, there are a lot of investments in this area. And I think we're going to see, you know, some more consolidation of players here as those forces start reconciling with Amazon and Walmart coming into the picture, it becomes a commodity good. And 
traditional healthcare providers can't compete on the prices with that. So when you have a market of such a kind of low price good, a fine, you know, a really discreet user base for it, like the market just ends up being very predictable that way. And it's, it's small. Um, and that there's certainly opportunities within that market, but it's not going to be as large or as grand as, you know, a lot of us are talking about, and we can see the growth rates, you know, behavioral health will continue to drive a lot of the demand for telehealth, but we don't see it for a lot much else beyond, you know, some primary care applications amongst that kind of female age cohort, you know, 21 to 40, but, you know, the future really is, you know, what I call kind of regression to the mean a little bit. Are we going to go purely back to pre-pandemic levels? No, but when you start looking at the curves, it's already, you know, we're going to start hovering down somewhere in the middle there. Well, thank you so much, Sandela. This has been a great conversation and I always really enjoy talking to you. Thanks, Kat. I really appreciate being here with you. And to all our listeners, thanks so much for tuning in. If you liked this episode, rate or review it on Apple Podcasts or wherever you get your podcasts and stay safe out there. Bye.